Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Day One, Week One podcast. My name is Billy Bowering. Great to have you guys back. It's our second episode for our YouTube channel. We're pretty excited about that. More importantly, the excitement is all mine. It's taken about three months to get Miss Joni to come in and, st- and talk to us. Miss Joni is a former dispatcher. She comes in. Uh, she wants to talk about her her experiences uh, being in dispatch, some of the ups, the downs, all of that, and her decision to become a, a dispatcher, um, and the heartfelt things that come behind that. Uh, Miss Joni, say hi to everybody. Hi, thanks for having me. I, I'm, I look forward to this. I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So it took it. It took a little time to to get us here. You had some personal things you had to take care of for a little while, um, and then yes. just the schedules with. I mean, Nick and I working full-time, you work a full-time, all of that. Um, the other part I should mention is how I know Miss Joni is um, she works in the administrative offices for the agency that we're, that Nick and I are in. Um, and that's how we get to, that's how we get to spend time with her. Um, I will say this, that the days that we are on day shift and we get to come into the office and see Miss Joni, uh, there's two things that are infectious about her. One is her smile and the other one is her laugh. So uh, we look forward to those days when we get to come in, um, when she's either on the phone, uh, trying to be as nice to somebody as, as she can be. Trying. Uh, you can usually tell when she turns and does this motion when she's on the phone, like <laughs> I need to get off the line kind of thing. But uh, super, super excited for you to be here. Thank um, you. Thank you for so having me. We're going to hear your story today. Okay. Um, and you're graciously agreed to come and and share that with us. So we're going to start right off. Where where are you from originally? Where did you grow up? Family dynamic, brothers, sisters, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I'm originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. I uh, grew up there with all of my family. Um, my dad is from a, a large family, 10 children. And um, I'm one of 29 grandchildren out of that family. And we now have 40 plus uh, great grandchildren. And over 30 great-great-grandchildren. Wow. So a, a wonderful legacy started by my grandparents. And all of the families were from Charlotte, with the exception, I think, of three of his siblings moved away from Charlotte. But other than that, we all grew up together um, within a five- to seven-mile radius of each other. So we all went to school together um, and celebrated holidays and stuff. So, yeah, it was awesome having those cousins to grow up with. So is the family still kind of together up there or is, yes. have they kind of s- scattered? Uh, a couple have moved, uh, have a couple out on the West Coast and uh, some up in the mountains of North Carolina and uh, a couple other places. But for the most part, yeah, the, the core group of the family is still in Charlotte. That's awesome. Yeah. So talk about the, um, as you were growing up, going through school or, or whatever it was, when your first interest or fascination with dispatching or how did you learn about that to be a career? Uh, I, uh, I had family members that were in the military, but I never had anybody in, in, uh, public safety, um, growing up. I, um, my brothers went to college. I did not. Um, I chose, I'm the youngest of four. I have three older brothers and one has passed away. Um, but I had never really had an interest in it. I knew I didn't want to go to college by the time I graduated high school and, um, excuse me. So, um, yeah, I was working temporary jobs, you know, when I graduated and, um, I was actually working at a German textile machine company. Uh, I had gotten the job through a temporary agency and one of the ladies that I worked with there, I think I'd been there maybe a year, maybe a little over that. Um, anyway, she left and went to work at the department and I think she called me maybe three months after she had been gone, and she was like, you got to try this. And, and she went to dispatch. She was working for them, and uh, she said, you have to try this. You will absolutely love it. It's And she, of course, you know, both of us from working Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and being 21 years old at the time, there was a draw to, to getting to work second shift, you know, uh, day shift and, and having my days off and going in at nights and things like that. And she just said, you'll, you will like it. You, you really should apply. So I did. And, uh, I started working there in October of 1985 at my former agency. And, um, absolutely after about six months, uh, and that was 
about how long we had for training at the time. Um, but I absolutely fell in love with it. Once, once it clicked, and I remember one of my trainers um, telling me, she said, you will get this. You'll be doing it one day. Because I was questioning myself, you know, with certain incidences that were coming up on the, on the radio and out in the field. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, I said, I don't know if I can do this. You know, what if this happens or what if that happens? And she said, you will be sitting here one day up on the radio and it will just click with you. And you will say, I got this. And I said, well, I sure hope that comes soon because I'm, I'm nervous. You know, what, what, if, what if I freeze or what if I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing at that time? And she's like, you got this. And she was right. It clicked. <laughs> and once it did, I thought, I found my niche in life, you know. I absolutely loved it. I looked forward to going into work every day because every day was different. It was exciting. I had a great group of officers um, and dispatchers that I was working with. Our supervisors were phenomenal. Uh, They were hard on us, but they had to be, you know, and I think they pressed that into us too, the fact that this this is a serious job. Yes, we can have fun, but it's very serious, and you need to take it serious. And um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot from those supervisors. They were old school. They had been there a while. Um, And at the time, I think I was the youngest one working there at 21 years old. So, yeah. So So I got got hooked early. So a lot of, you're saying from the older dispatchers, a lot of caffeine and nicotine probably in the room, right? Oh, my gosh. At that time, (laughs) you could smoke in the radio room. Oh, my gosh. And it was crazy. Uh, You know, you had a room that was maybe... I don't know, maybe 40 feet by 40 feet, if that, uh, dark. Right. You know, in the center of the main building, there was one hallway with windows on it that everybody could walk down and peek in at the monkeys in the zoo, you know. <laughs> um, but it was just so very different from how anything is now, you right. know. Right. So. Kind of a kind of a, a white haze in the, in the room. Oh, you open up the door That's and funny. it was a cloud of smoke <laughs> that would go out in the hallway and they would just, you know. Yeah, that was the stress reliever for a lot of people in there at that time. <laughs> so in your early interaction with dispatch, um, obviously you picked it up and you enjoyed it. Was it the being able to be, what was your vision of that? What was of your position when you were able to be the, the voice of the lifeline to the, police and the fire and, and EMS and all of those guys that you dispatched, what was the, uh, what was your vision of your, of your position in that? Or my role in that? Yeah. What, what, how did you feel? I guess, what was your empowerment with that? Cause you enjoyed it, obviously mm-hmm. being able to do that. So. Yeah. I've always worked in, since I graduated, I've always worked in some form of, of customer service. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and I felt like that, that definitely was a customer service type thing. Not only were you helping the citizens, but we found also that our officers and our fellow dispatchers, they were our customers as well. And you had to show that. You had to to make sure because it, it, it was a team. You know, we all worked together. And um, and it was important to, to treat the people that way on the phone and to treat our officers that way on the radio. You know, there, there was a mutual respect there. Did you tend to work with the same shift a lot of times or did you have a various, various other officers where you would know their voice by, you wouldn't have to hear their, their badge number or their call sign. You could tell who they were by their voice. Yeah. We, when I first started, we were rotating every 30 days. Um, We had six months to get the job. It was on the job training. You had six months, you had an evaluation at the end of each six months. Uh, And if you got it fine, you moved on to the next stage. Um, We were cross-trained for 911 as well as up on the radio for dispatch. And um, so, yeah, you had six months to, to get it. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, but it was just, it, it was the, just the excitement of it, you know, of, of working and, and getting to work with the same people, which we eventually did. I started out, like I said, rotating every 30 days between second shift and then midnight shift and then first um, and it was based on seniority. So, of course, when I started, I was on second shift, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And um, I got to know, I, I wound up dispatching for the area that I grew up in. 
<clears throat> so I knew that like the back of my hand. And that, that was a great fit for me. Uh, when I would go to midnight shift, I was still in the same area. So we wound up having assigned channels. Uh, they would bounce us around during training so you could learn different parts of the city. Uh, but eventually I went back to my old Adam 3 and Adam 4, right. uh, where I grew up. And um, yeah, so I got to know the officers' voices. They got to know mine. Um, most of the time they worked the same area. Every now and then, if they were put in a different response area from what they were used to, the advantage to learning to voice dispatch was if he called in under one unit that he was not normally, he you know, or if he was working a new response area, sometimes they would call in if they were in a foot chase or something, and they would call out the wrong unit number, what they were used to being, rather mm-hmm. than where they were that particular day. And you would have to answer, you know, the good thing was we could answer back their true, you know, their their call sign for that day. And so you knew that voice. You knew exactly who it was, whether you heard their call sign or not. You knew the voice. And that was very important. You know, that was one of the things um, I think that was an advantage to us working in the same area all the time. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I got to work with those officers. I got to know them, um, their kids, when they, you know, eventually got married and, and uh, started their family. So they knew us. They knew our families. We knew them and their families. It was a very close camaraderie between us and our officers. So you could tell, because you knew their voice, you could kind of tell if they were in a situation where they might, something might be going hairy. Oh, absolutely. You could, you could hear the tension in yeah. their voice. Uh, you could hear the hesitation on certain things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew in my voice too, right. if, you know, if they had asked for something to be ran or uh, I'm going to use 10 codes. I'm sorry. But I'm, I'm, I still live by 10 <laughs> codes. That's how it's embedded in my brain. Right. Um, you know, if they would ask for 29s or something and something came back, a, a wanted check mm-hmm. on someone. Um, they could kind of tell in my voice and the way I delivered it that there was something there. And at the time, we never just gave that information out over the radio. You, you didn't because there were no earpieces right. then. So we didn't dare want to risk whoever was standing there hearing the information on them. So hearing, you, hearing their bad laundry. Yeah, exactly. Over a radio. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, you that, that was a definite advantage mm-hmm. to, to work in the same group of officers in the same area all the time. Um, because you, you learned every, you, you learned the nuances of each other. Was there a call that was the funniest thing? Do you have one that you remember that was the funniest situation that you were in? I don't know if you can tell it on the, on Ooh, the I podcast. Don't know. Yes, by far <laughs> there is. I don't know that, we, I don't know that I can tell, I don't know that I can tell that one on the radio. Um, let's just say it involved a, a black Labrador and uh, a neighbor seeing some things out in her backyard that she probably, I'm sure, didn't want to see and hoped she never did again. And uh, the officer's comments once he got on the scene, you know, were um, had the whole room laughing. Because sure. at the time, you know, things were a little more relaxed on the right. radio and not near as politically correct. And so it, it, we still laugh about that to the day, to this day, so. Yeah, I won't go into details okay. on that one. But we'll, we'll let our imagination we go. We still laugh about that one. <laughs> so there was an incident um, that you told me about a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And, if, and, and again, I'm not trying to push the issue or anything else, but uh, one of the big reasons that we're here is because of we're here for, for trauma. We're here for understanding some of the things that not only police, but fire, EMS, dispatchers, everybody go through goes through. There was a traumatic event that that you were the, you were the main voice throughout the whole situation. Um, You can give as much detail, a little detail as you want to give on that. Um, I'm not trying to make you relive it by any means. Oh, it's there. Okay. Well, I just, what I'm saying is out of respect, I don't want to. Thank you. I don't want to make you feel any kind of discomfort with that. So um, you can share as much as you want. Okay. Um, but I would love for you to share that to someone who's listening so they understand exactly just your emotion, your feelings, maybe even the imagination of what you saw as you heard these events happen over the radio. Yeah. Um, first, let me preface this by saying I think any dispatcher, <clears throat> it's hard because you're only hearing usually one side of the conversation. Um and we use, a lot of times we don't know the results. 
you know, what happened in the end. We never got that closure. Um, <clears throat> and it's a very helpless feeling when you can't get out of that chair and you can't do anything other than sit there and wait to see what's happened, you know, or what's going on. Um, in this particular incident, uh, I was dispatching one night and um, our department had just recently switched to a new style radio. Uh, and on that radio, there were um, e-buttons uh, on their handhelds. And uh, that was something new for our department. And um, there was training on it. But I think there was still some confusion on people's parts on, you know, exactly what would happen if you hit that e-button. Um, but on this particular night, uh, one of my officers uh, and two of them had responded to a, uh, a domestic disturbance. And they had gotten there. They had calmed things down and they were transporting uh, the male half of the disturbance. And... Um, <clears throat> The officer wound up, I'm not going to go into details of, of the actual incident on the scene other than to say that this, this officer was shot uh, a couple of times and um, before the fatal shot. And um, his e-button went off. And at that time, everybody in the room, all of us knew that it was going off. We did not have their individual unit numbers at that time. All we had was a six-digit radio ID number. So when that e-button went off, that six-digit number would flash on the screen. So let me let me go back a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> at the beginning of each shift, we had handwritten rosters for who was working and, and in what response area that day. So all of us would go in and write in those six-digit radio IDs out beside each officer's names so that if that popped up on the screen, if anybody hit their e-button, we would know who it was. So in that you know, it took a, just a couple seconds to scan down and see, is, that, is this my guy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so when he pressed his e-button, um, of course, everybody was kind of scrambling to see, well, by that time, calls had started coming in on 911 that we had an officer down. And uh, when I realized it was my officer, of course, I'm calling by his unit number, and I get no response. And I'm calling again and no response. And... Uh, we're starting everybody that way <clears throat> because um, their officers had actually, I think, been flagged down uh, nearby too. And so they knew something was going on. And so it was, you know, everybody, you know, start that way. And, and of course, people driving that way as fast as they could, <clears throat> but also asking, you know, where is he at? You know, Joni, where is he? And you give them the location and uh, en route, en route, en route, en route. That's all you hear. Mm -hmm. And, um, so <clears throat> I think the worst feeling and the, probably the thing that I remember the most about that night was not getting that answer back, you know, because they, they were, um, our officers were very good about answering us if we called them, you know, and I had a routine, you know, I, I gave them two to three minutes on a traffic stop and then I was checking on them. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't answer, I'd try one more time. If they didn't answer again, I had somebody en route whether I did it over the radio or whether I sent them an MDT message, hey, such and such is here, go on and start that way. Um, and based on what he told me, you know, for the traffic stop and stuff too. But um, so with my routine, I was, you know, used to getting that answer back. They And, and again, I think that was part of the mutual respect thing. They knew that I genuinely cared about their welfare and that I wanted to see them go home every night. And um, so that was hard, you know, that, that silence. I think it was probably the hardest thing uh, until one of my sergeants, um, and his backup had already cleared the scene. He was the closest one to him, but he had already cleared the scene because the suspect was gonna be transported to jail. And um, so he got back on the scene and of course requested medic and uh, my sergeant got there and then every other available officer and we still, you know, nothing had been confirmed over the radio. Uh, we had a, a duty captain who was our acting chief of police after hours at that time. <clears throat> and of course he was asking for confirmation, was it you know, who we assumed it to be? And uh, we, at the time we had another channel that was separate from normal radio traffic that we could go to for private conversations. Mm -hmm. And um, so I remember 
you know, having to confirm that information and then give it to my duty captain. So before before you knew, just from the silence, had you known that there was an officer down by being shot at that point? Or did you just think he might have been disconnected from his radio at that point? Well, the calls that we were getting on 911 okay. were telling us there was an officer down and they heard shots fired. Um, so we we knew, you know, something had happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, he, from what I remember and from what I was told, you know, shortly thereafter, um, he was able to key up his mic on the emergency channel. At that time, it took them off their home channel and put them on a completely separate channel. And I think the reasoning behind that was so that nobody could talk over him. He had control of the channel, just he and dispatch, um, so that he wouldn't get talked over. But in doing that, uh, his backup didn't have any idea what was going on. And so now you have the dispatcher's focus on that e-channel as well as the regular channel. So just in hindsight, if I were designing a new system, you know, of course that won't happen. But, um, yeah, that's something I I think I I wished had been done a little differently, but it's water under the bridge. It is what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, just the silence, the silence from not hearing that answer back that I was used to. Um, and then of course, when everybody getting on the scene and. So when he's keying up on that emergency channel, the other officers can't hear him keying up either. So it's, it doesn't go. So they have no idea that he, that he had keyed up. They know that somebody had activated the E button. Mm -hmm. They didn't know who, they didn't know where, um, because it would make that, it, it did go out over the radio, that, that beep, they would know, um, and of course, that's when we would tell everybody to, you know, ten three or, or stop traffic till we can figure out what's going on. Um, one of the other dispatchers, and at that time, it's whoever could roll over to that that other channel to answer, you know, whoever's calling in on the E channel could. And one of our dispatchers got there before me, um, and she answered him, and he never answered back. So, so he was able to key up one time, and that bothers me. Yeah. So the silence. Because it leaves a lot of questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. How long after the silence and everything going from there, how long was there further communication, EMS arriving to respond to his injuries, um, maybe a supervisor on scene communicating with you, letting you know what was going on, or did you not... Or did, were you just kind of left in the dark of, of everything? I knew what had happened. I didn't know, of course, the extent or, or any of that until, you know, after. Um, my sergeant came on at the time and said, you know, Joni, go ahead and notify, uh, notify Highway Patrol, see if they'll start blocking off all these exits. And so we had the assistance of SHP and a couple other uh, agencies that um, – had heard about it over mutual aid, I'm assuming. And um, so they were gracious enough to block off all the exits off the interstate so that we could get him to the hospital as soon as possible. Um, He succumbed to his injuries the next day uh, and was taken off life support. Mm. Um, How long had you worked with that particular officer? Two and a half years. Yeah. Mm. Two and a half years. Yeah. So... um, but at that time, after the, you know, after the initial and, and knowing that he had made it to the hospital, um, my, uh, my supervisor was a formal, former police officer that had been injured. And so he was uh, our shift supervisor in the radio room at that time. And um, <clears throat> my, the duty captain that night uh, came up to the room shortly thereafter. And and like I said, I, I just, I remember everything was almost kind of in slow motion, you know, when it's going on. And and, and I've heard the recording of it uh, several times right. you know, shortly thereafter. Um, but just kind of the operation in, in slow motion and, and, and doing all the right things and saying all the right things, but not remembering hardly doing any of it at that time. How many years in... in- did you have when this incident happened? Mm, five years. So 
pretty seasoned for a dispatcher, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you you had all of the emergency, uh, all the training, mm-hmm. all your go-to kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, still doesn't really prepare you for that. No. When you started your training mm-hmm. as a dispatcher, did they have any kind of discussion regarding, hey, this is the potential of of this kind of traumatic event happening over the radio. You might be the person that's in, involved in that as far as being the dispatcher or the communication line. And did they, I guess, was there an attempt to prepare yourself for something like that in case, like what to do afterwards? Mm-hmm. Was, did they ever discuss, hey, if there's a critical incident and you're involved in that or you're part of that, we're going to go to the next level and we're going to have a debrief and we're going to have someone there that can talk to you and kind of help you through the emotional side of all that. Yeah. No, we did not have any Mm -hmm. of that. I, I, you know, my trainers of course told me, you know, there's the potential for this and this and this and this. And if you're ever working in the day that comes, you need to hold your together (laughs) basically was their advice. Because we're not going to send somebody up there to relieve you on the radio. You got to get through it. I'm like, okay, you know. So that and and you know, this is what we're going to need to do. Make sure you know your sergeant's aware of it. Make sure your supervisors in the radio room are aware so that they can notify the captain or, or whatever, and eventually work you know go up to the chief. But we were primarily handling what was happening on the radio. Um, and at that time. We dispatchers were not invite, invited to debriefings after crit, critical incidences. Right. We there was an officer that uh, um, was um, killed shortly before I started working there. A couple months before I started, um, and uh, that was in 1985 when I started. So, um, so yeah, I, I think they. I think at that time they didn't really think that dispatchers needed to be involved in that for whatever reason. Um, everybody that was on the scene was, and I, and I, I, I can only assume that their reasoning for that was because the ones on the scene saw it. And that, that's, that's huge. That, mm-hmm. That's way different than what I was dealing with. You know, my, mine was a whole different ball game. Um, so I think that that attention needed to be focused on, on that for them. But I don't think they realized um, <clears throat> how it affected the dispatchers on our end and the helpless feeling, you know, of it. But I had, like I said, I had great, great supervisors. And uh, the duty captain that happened to be working that night was a fantastic captain. And he knew how close I was to my officers and vice versa. He um, came up to the radio room after they had gotten this officer to the hospital, he came up to the radio room and he asked my supervisor, he said, why is she still up on the radio? Why is she not over at the hospital with her guys? Um, and he said, well, you know, it's done. It's, you know, it's done. She, she's up there and, you know, they've already got him to the hospital. And he said, get her relief right now because I'm going to take her over to the hospital. That's where she needs to be with all of her squad wow. and um, their family, and that's where she needs to be. That's impressive. And I will never, never forget that, and I'm eternally grateful to him. He has since passed. Um, but that meant the world to me because that, to me, was him saying, I know you're part of this squad, you know, instead of you're here and the guys are here. And the guys and girls in my groups um, – they never treated me any differently. They, that, was, that was your validation that you were part of that team. Ab- absolutely. 100%. That's, yeah. that's impressive. 1990, that's, I don't think that was mm-hmm. something that happened a lot. I can imagine it's not. No, it really wasn't. Yeah. You know, you kind of had, usually I think most of the time you had your dispatchers together and you had your officers. And in our department, I, in, you know, I've talked to people that worked at other agencies and stuff. And I, th- I think we were very fortunate in having that um that closeness and that camaraderie between our officers and dispatchers. I've seen a lot of other agencies where that closeness is not there. And I think that's a big part of the trust issue on both sides. You know, I trusted them to let me know 
when they needed something and to let me know how they were if I hadn't heard, you know. And they knew, I think they trusted me enough to say, she's going to give me all the information that she can to help me before I get to this call, which I did. I kept a notebook. Mm-hmm. Well, this is way out in the field. I actually kept a notebook um, with all of my <clears throat> calls for services, all of the driver's license I ran, all of the records checks I ran, tags, and I would keep it each shift. And I actually referred back to that. I know one time about a week and a half later, um, somebody stopped someone and I, and the, I recognized the name. And uh, I was on a, a different channel that day. And um, I said, check with Tony because I think, I think I had her run a 27 on this guy about a week, week and a half ago. And there was something up with his name. He either gave the wrong ID or something. And so they called me on the information channel at the time and said, did you? I was like, sure did. And that was actually his brother's ID that he gave you. And they're like, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Thank you for the information. And they went back to their main channel and, you know, passed it on. So my thing was, I, I, I was very detail oriented. And uh, of course I was in my mid twenties, right. you know, so my memory was much better then. And I was much better at multitasking than I am now. Well, one of the cool things is that you've brought that with you to our agency. And whenever you take a phone message, you still keep notes. I noticed that you have (laughs) have a notepad and anybody that calls in and leaves a message, you write all the details down and you could go back to it. And and I still do that now at this job. Yeah. Yeah. I'll still refer back to notes from a couple of days before and, and stuff. That's really cool. So that was just my little thing, you know. So you got to, uh, did you get a relief and get to go? To the hospital or? I, I did. Okay. I did. My so captain. when you left, when you left your, when you were relieved and you got to go, he was, your, the officer was still alive at that point. As far yes. as you, but he was, I'm sure he was critical. You weren't going to yes. be able to walk in and, and say hi to him or anything. Oh, but, no, no, no. Right. Um, you were there as part as part of the support. Absolutely. Gotcha. Uh, my, my duty captain uh, took me over there and everybody, the uh, male and female officers in my group were, um, lined up out in the hospital and uh, huge hugs Mm -hmm. and a lot of prayers going up from everybody out in the hallway. And, and the doctors and nurses were just, you know, they were amazing. And, And I think, I think they saw at that time too, just how how close everybody was, and um, so yeah. And then of course we got the news the next day. You know, mm-hmm. I was at the hospital for several hours, and then I uh, went on home, and um, I got the news the next day. So, well, I'm definitely sorry uh, for the loss that you had to go through. Um, I mean, that's that stuff that, like you said, it it's always there. Right. Yeah, it's, it's always, always there. there. And yeah. certain things trigger it more than others. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, an officer at, at our agency several months back uh, <clears throat> came across the radio and I happened to hear it. And I miss that. I will mm. always miss that. <laughs> I will always miss hearing the radio traffic, you know. Um, but uh, I know I, uh, this officer was calling for assistance and immediately my heart started thumping and I'm just kind of on pins and needles till I hear, you know, if somebody's calling her or, um, and, and if they don't answer, my heart's thumping until, till I hear that voice. And then I'm like, okay, okay. All is, you know, everything's okay. Well, we get the same way sometimes if somebody's on a traffic stop or something else. And it's the first check mm-hmm. after three minutes, if it's the first check and they call out and there's no answer. I immediately look at our computers and I'm like, where's this guy at? Cause yeah. I'm, I'm going to head that way or, or I'll turn around or I'll do it because he didn't answer. And I, for the life of me, I don't ever want to roll up. And I know officers have done that in the past. They've had to roll up after not hearing the call. So, so, um, after the officer, um, had passed and, say two, three months later, mm-hmm. was there any interaction, any talk about that? Did you, 
on your own possibly go to speak to anybody about about going through that, or was no. it just kind of go right back to work and? There was no counseling. Business as usual. Yeah, no counseling. We weren't invited to the debriefing. Um, <clears throat> our department had uh, we had chaplains. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember everybody anybody ever saying, "Excuse me, um, hey, do you do you need to talk to somebody?" You know, I, I don't remember any command staff ever coming to me and saying that. I do know that the officers that I worked with just throughout the department, not just in in my district, but um, I do remember them constantly checking on me, you know, within the weeks and months that followed up. It's like, hey, you doing okay? You know, are you all right? Yeah, and they said, you realize there was nothing else you could do, right? I just want to make sure you understand that. And I said, I know, you know, I know that. But it doesn't make it hurt any less. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't make it hurt any less. It's still, um, it's tough. And I think that incident there, because, you know, there had been other incidences and stuff and close calls. Uh, and then again, unfortunately, we had um, uh, had another officer um, shot and killed. I think a year and three months after that, uh, there were a total of um, seven while I worked there. And two of them were double shootings. Were you on the radio for those or you were just, was it during your shift? Mm -hmm. I was on the radio for the one that uh, a year and a half, year and three, four months later, I Mm -hmm. was, I was working a different channel. I was not on his channel. Thank goodness. Um, because when that came out and I knew this officer personally, when that came out, I started crying, sitting at my console. Um, just, I, I think it just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I didn't expect it to, but it did. And, uh, I just, I remember sitting up there crying, still doing what I had to do, but crying. And, um, I knew they could hear it in my voice, you know, cracking. But, um, yeah, so that, that immediately brought it all back, and, and even though I wasn't even on the channel where it was happening this time. So, yeah, and it's been, what, 30-some years ago. Yeah. Stuff. So during that time, what do you think is the best way, if someone is going through it, going have going through critical incidents right now or a dispatcher that's listening to this podcast and they've experienced, you know, some critical events over the radio or just that sense of not knowing that mm-hmm. silence, the anxiety that kind of comes to that. Yeah. And it, it accumulates, obviously it has what we call the snowball effect, right? Starts as a little tiny yes. pebble gets bigger as it goes because it's not dealt with. Absolutely. Yeah. What is the best way that we can help people understand that it's okay to reach out. Oh, this is what, this is what we're here for. Please reach out. Um, looking back now, you know, I, I think I probably should have talked to someone, um, because I took that job very personal. You know, it was not just a paycheck to me by any means. Um, I took pride in what I did and I put 110% into every shift that I worked. And I got that in return. You know, again, there was a mutual respect, and I'm very proud of that. Um, and that's a job that uh, I don't know that I could go back and do it nowadays because it's very different. Um, but my heart will always be there. And uh, so I've been in some form of support of law enforcement for 21 and a half years. Um, at three, two different agencies and one small stint and a third one that I did for a while. So, yeah, it's always just kind of been my go-to. I knew when we moved out west, I thought, well, if all else fails, I can get a job. I can get a job dispatching if I have to. And get on the radio. Because I knew I could do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're always looking for dispatchers, right? Especially mm-hmm. ones that have a dedication to that service. Yeah. And I think it takes that, but I'm sorry, I kind of okay. jumped around your question. Um, 
my advice to anybody doing that now is definitely reach out. Reach out. And whether it's to your pastor, if you have one, if it's a chaplain at your department, um, a close friend, somebody. <clears throat> because I think it's important to to verbalize that, if that's the right terminology. Mm-hmm. Um, don't just keep it in. I, I had a great support system in my officers and my coworkers, and that got me through it. But I still think it was important to probably take a step outside of that and go talk to someone that had no vested interest in it whatsoever and somebody that could just let me get it out and say, and me not feel guilty thinking, wow, here I am trying to get this off my chest and trying to process it and deal with it. But you guys are out there on the scene and I feel guilty about that, you know, but I still, they were awesome. They were an awesome support system for me, but still. There was a little bit inside of me that felt guilty going, you weren't even there. And I, and I wonder if people thought that too, you know, other people that, you know, I didn't want them thinking, why is she so upset? She wasn't there. She didn't see it, you know, but it's different. It's, it's still a different, it's, it's just different. Well, like you said, you're on the radio. There's, there's that silence. There's the wall. There's the unknown sense of helplessness, all of that. And the visualization in your brain, you're, you're sitting here based on what little bit of details you've received and heard over the radio, because not much went out, you know, over something like that. Of course, they're not going to fill any details. So your mind is racing and your mind is trying to fill in that picture. And then you go home that night and, and you know what's happened. And then you're, you close your eyes and you're envisioning it. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this had to be, this had to be awful. I can, I could say that that's probably worse than actually being there because your imagination has a tendency to carry things sometimes. Oh, it can make it way bigger than it, than it was. Yeah. Your imagination can be a beast sometimes and it can be your enemy. One thing we're learning throughout the podcast is some themes. One of the things is obviously have a support system. People that you trust. Yes. They don't all have to do the same thing you do. That's important um, to understand. Sure. Have friends that aren't for like Nick and I have friends that aren't, are not in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So that when we, when we, talk to them about some of the things that we go through. We watch their face. Oh, wow. That's right. You, do, you don't do this for a living, so you don't understand yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. But having that support system, having that just, even, even if it's that one person to go for a walk with and say, hey, I got some stuff I got to get off my chest. Somebody. Yeah. I believe wholeheartedly in personal contact, personal interaction with people because that's what saved my life three years ago, two years ago. Mm-hmm someone physically putting their hands on me and holding, embracing me and mm-hmm. saying, this, this is not going to happen with me here. Yeah. As much as I thought it was going to that day, mm-hmm. it didn't because that person physically interacted with me. So just reaching out sometimes is going to, is enough for someone to listen. Mm-hmm. So always answer your phone, right? That's exactly That's right. important. You never know when somebody is is searching for that light. And I I think we all need to <clears throat> strive to be that light. Um I know an officer that I knew for years and worked with for years. Um recently took his own life. And it it's crushing. You know, because we're thinking, oh, man, why didn't you just reach out? Why didn't you, God, call me at 4 a.m. in the morning. Call somebody, you know. And that was hard to believe, him of all people, you know, very outgoing, just a 
great guy, great officer. Um, tons of respect from his coworkers. And you just think, oh, that just that breaks my heart. That breaks my heart that anybody in that position feels like that's their only option. That's what hurts. Because when you know that there are people out there that do care and that would do anything to, to prevent that, you're like, gosh, why didn't I know? How did I miss that? How, you know, so reach out, reach out. It's okay. Well, there's that, there's that saying, I'd rather hear your painful story than I would listen to a eulogy. Absolutely. Spot on. Absolutely. You know, that's a big one for me. Um, every time I hear about a suicide throughout the country, um, I've kind of got my radar tuned to it a little bit now because I'm involved in this and yeah. I've, I've had that burden for a long time, but I didn't realize yeah. how big it was. Yeah. Um, it's, it's enormous, but it doesn't mean it's, it's just like uh, the saying, how do you eat an elephant? Right. One bite at a One time. One bite at a time. Absolutely. Um, I have a goal. My goal is zero suicides for first, first responders and, and veterans. And I'm going to do whatever, whatever I can to try to make that happen. And like I said, the main reason we want people to come in here that have experienced incredible traumas uh, to talk about that and relay just kind of how you went through what you did. I mean, you, you talked about your support system. They were your coworkers. They were the people that you trusted and relied on. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure there was, like you said, a lot of hugs, a lot of prayers that day because Mm -hmm. it was painful. Yeah. And my family supported me too, but they had never been involved in anything, you know, with law enforcement. And I remember my brother telling me one time, he was like, God, you're beat up with this job. I was like, yeah, I am. You know, that was my second family. And still is to this day. Right. I still am in close contact with a lot of people that I worked with. Um, <clears throat> and uh, but whether it's your family, whether it's your coworkers, whether it's whoever, doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. As long as it's somebody that you trust enough, like you said, to open up to. And and I hope and pray that. Um, Anybody in any situation like that has at least that one person, you know, that they could just say, hey, I need to talk. I need to talk about something because it's weighing me heavy, weighing me down, you know. I'm up on a ledge and I need you to to talk me down, right? Yeah. Yeah. I need somebody to kick that foot back the other direction. Mm -hmm. You you talked about earlier, if you could change things, maybe the system wide, things like that. I've got kind of an interesting question I want to ask you. Yeah. Let's say we're Miss Joni's getting it's Miss Joni's dispatching one oh one. She's starting a new class, a new curriculum. You're starting you you you're the one training these these new dispatchers coming in. We're in a different generation. We're in a different mindset of the way the world works today. Yeah. It's day one, week one. (laughs) Time to start fresh. Right. It's day one, week one of the class. Yeah. The bell just rang. Everybody's sitting down, open to page A. What's the first, what's the first, how how are we going to introduce what Miss Joni has experienced to brand new people coming in? My first question would be, why are you here? Why are you here for this job? Kind of like what you asked me. So you're going to start it with? What drew you to it, number one, Mm -hmm. other than a paycheck? Is there anything other than a paycheck that brings you to this job? Number two, do you have a passion? Do you have a passion um, and just a a general interest in the well-being of other humans? Because I think that has to be present. Um. And to start it out, it would be, are you going to take this job serious? Because I think so many people don't. I've seen it. I've heard it. And um, 
it was more than just a job. So, yeah, be here for the right reasons. Put your heart into it. Because what you get back out of it, if you're lucky and as blessed as I was, what you will get back out of it are some lifelong friendships and huge support system. So, yeah, I'm very blessed. Nice. Well, I want to take the class, so just let me know when we're going to have it because <laughs> I definitely want to be a part of that class because I have a, a need to help others and all that kind of stuff. I just don't know if I would have quite the powerful impact that you, I'm sure you had as a dispatcher. Oh, no, no. I'm not as detail-oriented, <laughs> first of all. You ask some of my former trainees and you may get a totally different, <laughs> may get a totally different answer on that because I was, you know, I was pretty tough on some of them and, and. Some of my friends that I've worked with for years will still give me a hard time about something. They're like, man, when you were up there on that radio, if something was going on, he said, you threw that hand up in the air. Like if somebody was talking or laughing or cutting up, you'd be like. You do that in the office too. I do still. Yes, I do. Turn around and stick your finger. You're like, guys. (laughs) That was their thing. Everybody's like, like, sorry, Miss Joni. They're like, don't, man, just don't cut up around her console because she's trying to listen, you know. And, and you got the sergeant and the captain all on your on your side, too. I mean, nobody's giving Miss Joni any mess, <laughs> I'm going to tell you. Because the captain will come crew. right into the office and he'll be like, uh, you, you can leave. You're out of here. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a good crew. That's why I drive, that's why I drive as far as I do every day because of, <laughs> of location, location, location. That's right. It's a great group of great group of people. So it's tell us what brought you to, what brought you into Myrtle Beach, South Carolina? What brought you down here? Wow. From, from Montana, no less. Right. Yeah. I grew up in Charlotte. My husband retired from the military after 28 years in the army. Um, Love to have him on the podcast one day. Oh, that man's got some stories. It's going to be a six if part series. To talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't talk about a lot. He, he really doesn't. Right. I understand. Um, but uh, yeah, we moved out to Montana when he retired. We were out there for eight years. Um, absolutely loved it. I worked for the DOJ uh, when I was out there. So like I said, since 1985, every job but two small jobs when we first moved out to Montana have been involved in law enforcement in one way or the other. Because um, I just, I don't know, it's my family. It's my second family. Anyway, we uh, we moved out there, and then we, uh, for health reasons, came back to the East Coast to a warmer climate. I toughed it out as long as I could. And uh, I remember the first winter out there, it was very mild. Everybody said, oh, that's a mild winter. I'm like, I can do this, you know. Winter number two was a little more, I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. And the third winter, I said, I am out of my element, but I'm going to hang into, I'm going to hang on to this as long as I can. And so we, we were there for eight years, moved back east for warmer climate. Um, I grew up coming to the North Myrtle Beach area um, ever since I was six years old. And I um, have some friends that live down here that retired uh, from where I used to work. And um, so we still get together down here. But that's what drew me. That's what drew me back east. Um, Closer to family, obviously, right? Yeah. And then the beach access, stuff like that. Yeah, closer mm-hmm. to my family. Didn't have to That's fly good. back for the holidays and, right. or make a three-day road trip to, to get home for Christmas or Thanksgiving. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, we're overwhelmed that you're here and that you're part of our family. Um, I, I know the first day I met you, I was like top-notch right there. Oh, good, good, to be, good to be in your, in your, in your presence in the, in the office. Because you. you do take control of a room. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or no, bad thing, but it's, it's definitely good. It's definitely good. It's that extra gene that we, right. that we have, you know, it's, it's that control. Thing. Sometimes you gotta be in control. So do you have any, um, I don't want to say final thoughts because obviously we want our guests to come back or feel they they want to come back. So do you have any other thoughts that you would like to relay when it comes to the stigma of mental health or seeking mental health? Just the reasons why people won't or don't. Do you have any thoughts on that you can share with that one person that's listening right now who's a dispatcher, maybe for six months, and they just are getting over that? Yeah, I think I can do this. Yeah. Um, 
help them understand that, that cumulative part of trauma, the, the silence, the not knowing, no closure kind of stuff that's going to weigh on them. Mm-hmm. Try to help them move into, it's going to be okay because that's a normal feeling kind of thing, but kind of your thoughts on how to help that person or those people to go to keep striving. Realize that every one of us, um, regardless of what your job is, but if you're in a profession such as you two gentlemen um, and on my end for dispatchers, realize that um, it, do, it takes a toll on you, whether, whether you think it's going to or not, um, whether you acknowledge it or not, it does take a toll on you. Um, the adrenaline rush, the up and down. And again, ours was nothing like y'all's out on the road. It was just a different form, like a different color in a a spectrum, if that makes sense. Um, Ours was a paler version. Like if you guys were like red, we were like pink, (laughs) pink, peach, depending on the situation, then it started kind of amping up. But I get off. I'm a little wordy, you know, in case you haven't noticed. Um, she got a rain me in every now and then. But um, yeah, re- realize that um, everybody's going to go through it, one form of it or another, in their lifetime. And uh, it's good. It's good to acknowledge it. Don't bury it. Don't hide it. Talk about it. And I think that's especially hard for somebody in your profession because. If you, you deal with people that have different levels of mental illness every day you're out there. And um, so I think it may be even harder for you guys because you see that. You, you see that. And like, well, I don't want to be like that. I don't, want, I don't want to be like that. I don't want somebody thinking I'm like this. Just own it. Mm-hmm. Own it and realize I am who I am. This is what I've been through. This is how it affects me. And when I start seeing differences in my normal behavior, then it's time to say, it's okay. It's okay to, it's okay to reach out. It's okay to talk to somebody um, for your own well-being and for your family because it affects your families too. My family saw a difference in me um, after years of working there, you know. And I, uh, yeah, it's going to be okay. But make that make that call, make that call, or reach reach out, because uh, it's going to make a difference in your life, and hopefully somebody else's. I love it. I love it, Miss Joni. I know. Again, we say this to everybody. We want y'all to come back. Um, there's there's so much more that can be said about it. You know, um, I really appreciate your time. I know you you drove kind of out of the way to be here today. So um, but um, this was definitely worth the wait. Well, thank you so as much as for I'm having con- me. As far as I'm concerned. Um, well, I'm happy to be here. Um, and thank you, thanks for the opportunity to kind of tell the other side of the, tell the other side of the story. So I'm, I'm, I'm very honored. Thank you. Well, I can't wait till it airs. It's going to be, it's going to be great uh, for all the dispatchers that are out there. Everybody that's, you know, looking into that career, this will give them some insight for sure. I hope so. All right. So you can reach us at dayoneweekone.org. Um, obviously, you're checking us out on YouTube. Go to our Facebook channel, our Facebook page. Uh, we're on Instagram, TikTok. Um, we're on a bunch of different social medias. We have the audio podcasts on every platform where you can get your podcast. And if you want to reach out to us personally, just reach out at contact. It's going to be contact at dayoneweekone.org. If you have any questions if you we would love to get some feedback from everybody um and if you want to come and tell your story um just reach out to us and we're gonna make those kind of things happen so thanks for listening thanks for watching miss joni thank you again absolute honor having you on thank you happy to be here awesome thanks
Father, we just come to you this evening and we just thank you for your incredible mercy. Father, we just thank you that we have an opportunity to, through the airwaves, through the internet, to be able to possibly find that one person that is sitting in a place right now where they don't know what tomorrow looks like and they're so scared. There's so much pain and they're tired and all of the emotions that go in, in inside of that and they just don't want to do it another day. Father, we ask that you just embrace them right this moment. Heal their heart, heal their mind. Give them the ability and the desire to reach for the phone or walk over to their friend's house or what it, whatever it looks like for them so that they can get the assistance, the help, the love, the support that they need. Father, your word is very clear. It says that it's not good for man to be alone. And Father, I pray that we come together again like we did years ago. Miss Joni talked about her family and how many members are in their family and how large it was, how huge that family was. I remember that dynamic of having a large family. Father, we're part of your family. We need to reach out to each other. We need to know that one another is here for each other. And we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity and opening our eyes to that. And I just pray that we find our community and bring healing. No more suicide, Lord. No more stopping what you've started. I just thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your goodness and your grace. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.